Hi, everyone. This is David Cohen, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Brad Feld. Hey, Brad. And this is the Give First podcast. And in the startup world, Give First means simply trying to help anyone, especially entrepreneurs, without any expectation of getting anything back. So we'll be talking to mentors and founders about what Give First looks like in action and how it makes great entrepreneurship possible. We polled everyone and they said consistently that their favorite part of the show was the legal mumbo jumbo. So here it is. The following discussion is an expression of personal opinion and does not represent the opinion of Techstars or any company we discuss. Our conversations for informational purposes only, including any mention of securities or funds. This is not legal business investment or tax advice and is not intended for use by any investor. Certain of Techstars funds own or may own in the future securities in some of the companies discussed in this podcast. Got it? Super excited to be joined today by my friend and Techstars all-star mentor, among many other things, Monique Maley. Monique started as a serial entrepreneur She's also a classically trained actor, uh, which I think is really cool, especially for her current business where she is an executive coach, works on leadership development, does a lot of public speaking at Articulate Persuasion. She's also the author of an awesome new book that we're going to spend some time talking about based in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Monique. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. The ultimate expression of Give First to me is mentoring at Techstars. Uh, You've been doing that for quite a while. You were named an all-star mentor if people don't know what that means that are listening. It's just voted on by the entrepreneurs. It's, I don't know, top one or two percent of the mentors that are out there in terms of how they've helped. So how did that feel? That was pretty amazing, actually. The first time we happened to be having demo day in a really big theater and all of a sudden my face came up and all I could think of is, why did they put that picture up? (laughs) So it's a real honor because Knowing that you're bringing value to the entrepreneurs, to me, is the reason why I do it. And I have cut out a lot of other volunteering things that I do. And I now clean my calendar when it's something for Techstars and one other organization that I'm involved in. But because I'm such a passionate uh, Techstars sort of advocate. Well, that's what makes it all work. So uh, I know there's a lot of people listening that are grateful for that and for the 7,000 mentors or so around the world. Being one of the top ones, that's a pretty big honor because there's some amazing people. So thanks for all you do there. want to learn a little bit about what you're up to today and how you got to that point. So walk us through the background as an entrepreneur, some of the, the acting stuff and how that brought you to Articulate Persuasion. It's interesting. When I was younger, I'll just say that the term entrepreneur was not thrown around the way it is today. I did not realize I was an entrepreneur until much later, even though I was starting businesses. I honestly... I was raised as an only child and I started a bookstore in my parents' house when I was like seven. I think that's just always the way that my brain works. I really think that entrepreneurship is a way of working, a way of thinking rather than a, it's not a job or a title. Even though for me, theater and film was my first professional career, being an actor really is an entrepreneurial endeavor anyway. You might be lucky enough to have a good agent. And not all agents are good, but you still have to be your own advocate. You've got to be into sales and marketing. You've got to refine your content. You've got to be able to show up in a way that's going to be compelling for the audience. And that's just before you even get cast. You really have to be entrepreneurial. And then training as an actor, I trained at RADA, which is a very different way of training, sort of more classically, where there's a lot of focus on text and subtext, body language and movement, and how we as an individual show up affects how people view us. And I I bring a lot of those tools into my work now. 
But when I decided to leave that industry for a variety of reasons, I started another business, which I grew and sold. And then another one that I grew and sold and not honestly, not by some of the grow and sell statistics that you hear with a lot of tech stars company. I'm not a tech person in that or certainly wasn't then. But I think that entrepreneurship and hiring people and creating sustainable businesses is really the goal. And so by those goals and those success metrics, you know, I did that. And then when I started this, my whole thing was how do I help other leaders really get out of their own way, both as a business leader, as a founder, and bringing my old actor's toolkit to the table? Can I help elevate the leadership to make better, more sustainable companies? Awesome. And you talked about the acting thing. And I always say entrepreneurship is is a creative endeavor, right? Programming is too, by the way, which is a thing I did earlier in my career. And I imagine acting, I've never done it, but I imagine it's the same. You got to create something out of nothing, create a character, create a personality. So it's funny how those things have similarities and attract like-minded folks. Absolutely. And I would say, actually, for years, I've been saying one of the things that has attracted me so much to the startup ecosystem and why I get so energized by it is because it's exactly like theater and film. There are so many things about it. There's the energy, the creativity, the collaboration, the building something from nothing. That's, you know, you want to get great reviews. You want it to be better. You want it to go on longer. But it's that camaraderie and that building something from nothing. It's intoxicating. I think that's why so many of us love to be in the space. In your coaching practice or working with entrepreneurs today, are there any tactical things that you find yourself repeating often that they maybe come from the acting background or any other experiences that you could share with people listening? Often because of the work that I do, when I first start working with a new cohort or with a new program, because I've been involved with numerous programs, and so I have relationships with a lot of MDs. But the first thing that people gravitate to is the whole investor pitch thing. And some people assume that's the only thing I do, but that's the easiest way for people to understand what I do. And the biggest thing that I work with cohorts and all entrepreneurs around, because I do this with clients who are doing series A, series B, series C as well, is really helping them focus not on what's happened, but on what's going to happen, right? The whole vision component and being able to portray that where they can spend more time talking about the business than the product. If you want to sell me your widget, then by all means, take up all the time in the world telling me about your widget. If you want me to invest in your business, then tell me about your business. And then finally, it's the delivery. And this is where I see so many great, smart founders really lose their way. Is if you cannot deliver your pitch, whether it's five minutes or 50 minutes, you're sitting there with an investor. If you don't deliver it with conviction and confidence, you lose out on everything. And that's why some people get money, even though their idea is completely awful, because they're great at the confidence and conviction. So the metaphor that I always use is, you can know a really funny joke, but if you don't know how to tell it, nobody's going to laugh. And when you're looking for investment, knowing how to tell the joke, knowing how to tell the story is as important as the richness of the story itself. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, that's why I think it's been so powerful to have you involved in these Techstars programs. We're preaching the same thing all the time, but I think your lived experience helps you probably explain it better. And I think people get that takeaway from you. It's so important to deliver it with energy and enthusiasm, right? Because one of the things I, I remember saying in the early days of Techstars, the first class, the second class is like, if you're not excited about what you're talking about, why should I be excited about it? So it's it's not just crazy energy and excitement, but it's confidence and enthusiasm about the business that you're building. 
and surety, that conviction point, you have to say things that you're absolutely certain about. And it's okay. This is so powerful. I really hope that people take this. It is not only okay to say, I don't know, but I believe that only confident people will ever say, I don't know. People who are not confident, either in themselves or in their business, will ramble on giving an answer in the hope that they land on something that at some point might sound remotely relevant to somebody, but they never got to the point. So I personally would rather be talking to a founder who says, I don't know, but let me connect you with my head of finance. I don't know. We're currently doing some research there. I don't know, but that's a great idea. We should look into that, right? So it's not, I don't know, period. It's, I don't know, comma, and you keep going. And I think that element of conviction, because that also, it informs your body language. It informs your tone. It informs your word choices. You don't want people where we're hoping to, and we would like to be able to, and those sorts of things. That's very wishy-washy language when you're asking people to write you what is a six or seven digit check. My favorite example of that that I use all the time is when someone says, we're trying to raise a million dollars. And I pull out my Yoda, of course, and I say, do or do not, there is no try, right? Like, uh, we're raising a million dollars, right? And this is what we're doing, and it's happening, and it's the confidence around that. It's it's a very simple, subtle change in what you're saying, but it really matters. It communicates so much to you as the listener, as the investor. Trying means they think there's a chance they're not going to get it. Trying says that that leader may not have complete conviction in their idea. Trying says that they think this is hard, what they're doing. Like the easiest thing should be getting somebody else excited about something you're excited about. That should be one of the easiest things that you do when you're running a startup. You would think with the challenges that there's plenty of entrepreneurs that that's just not natural for them. And I find that that's, you've seen that a lot in the context of tech stars. I and mean, that's one of the things that we try to work on with them is it doesn't mean you have to be really flamboyant and you know crazy with your arms and everything, right? But you do want to have confidence about what you're speaking about and you want to have some excitement, whatever that means for you and your voice and your emotion around the delivery of it. So I think it's really key. That's really the key that so much about why I wrote the book is really this focus on the leader as the individual. Because what I want to help people do is get out of their own way. There are a lot of external things that come in and make work hard, whether it's your career or your business, or even if you're in a corporate environment, right? It can be hard. But what are the things that we do that create turbulence for us? Because I use that term with my clients all the time. It's that idea of turbulence. And The mindset is the first thing. I call it the conversations you have with yourself. And I think that that confidence thing is often just about the narrative people have in their own heads, whether it's a narrative that you you can have one diabolical mentor or advisor who completely takes you, just makes you question everything. And if you let that take over your mindset, then it just makes every successive conversation that much harder. You know, I've worked with people who, from day one, and I will say this frighteningly happens with a lot of female founders in particular. From day one, they're told, well, you know, we're going to have to bring in a CEO. I don't see that conversation being had as often with the male founders, even though sometimes that happens. But if before you've even really gotten off the ground, people are already telling you you need to be replaced, it's really hard to come back and have the kind of confidence to tell a seed stage VC that he needs to write you a $1.5 million check. So it starts here, right? It starts with what's going on internally that we can bring that kind of confidence and conviction to the conversation. 
We're going to get to the book, but you sort of circled around another topic here, which I know you're passionate about. I know a lot of listeners are too, is sort of the massive sort of gap, right, between female entrepreneurs, for example, or black entrepreneurs and and the capital that's out there versus what maybe a white entrepreneur would experience in this country. So when you think about those women going and speaking to those VCs, one of the things that I always try to coach is, is try to change that language, right? It tends to be downside protection when women are getting questions, right? The VCs, particularly the male, might say something like, well, what happens when this goes wrong? Or they might ask a male CEO, what about the upside? How big could it be? What's your advice? I mean, you've seen this a lot and experienced and lived it. For example, a woman who's getting that kind of language, how can they turn that around in the conversation without being defensive? It's interesting. And actually, there's research out of the University of Pennsylvania that shows that exact same thing. That is exactly what happens. And I believe that you don't turn it around in the conversation because those moments, you have to prepare for it before you get there. Number one, you have to prepare for the kinds of questions you're likely to get and cut them off at the past before it goes there. How can you, in your first five minutes, 10 minutes, create a narrative which is really financially focused. Oftentimes women are addressing problems that women face and there are some male investors who shut down to that. How can you, in the first words that you put on the table, show them what a big financial opportunity this is? Should we have to do this? No, but we have to be realistic about what is sitting on the other side of the table. And I also think, you know, you want to make sure you do your due diligence and is this somebody you want to be in bed with, right? Is this somebody you want on your cap table? But if you can prepare in advance how you will respond, what you will say, how you will redirect the conversation so that those moments of frustration or anger or whatever that may come up for you don't undermine your messaging. Because it's very hard to come up with the answer in the moment. If you already have something, a sentence that you've crafted or a direction that you want to take things in before you've even walked in the door, then you can be in command of that conversation in a way that's going to serve you, but it's also going to give them what they need to know. The acting background shining through there, because I imagine if you know what questions you're going to get, right, prepare for those, know what you're going to say, know your lines, right? And it, it can keep the emotion in check. Great advice. So I want to get back to the book. It's called Turbulence, as you mentioned, Leadership's Unsexy Solution to Streamline Rapid Growth. Definitely want to dig into that subtitle and tell us what the book's all about. And let's dig into why you wrote it. People have been asking me to write a book or why haven't you written a book, right? You start getting that early on. And I never felt like I had a fresh take or something that I really felt was going to be valuable. But what I realized is that I finally wanted to write it because there are people I'm never going to meet. There are clients I'm never going to work with. And I want to be able to share some of the strategies and tools that I've used with my clients over the last 11 years. Because if in this world, we can make a world of more effective leaders who are better at engaging and better at leading other people, which ultimately is the definition of leadership, right? Not the title, but the fact that somebody's following you. I think everything gets better in a lot of ways. That was really why I said, okay, this is the time I want to really write the book. And the book itself really focuses that unsexy solution title when I was working with my publisher is because nobody ever wants to do what I talk about, right? They don't want to make time for it. And it's about communication because communication hits every single thing that you do. It's how you show up. It is how you pitch to investors or do sales pitches. It's how you hire a team. It's how you onboard your team. It's how you make team dynamics work functionally together. It is the underpinning of everything that we do. And yet very few people spend any time being intentional about it. 
And they also have a very limited definition of communication, which is I sent the email, right? Or we got on a Zoom and that's really not it. That's a tool that you used. We communicate by what we say, but we also communicate when we don't say things. Our war choices, just like we were talking about early when they're trying to raise, they said what they were doing, but the way they said it communicated an awful lot about them. Body language, energy, all of that shows up in how we communicate. And it's everything. The running joke about culture is that companies will pay $200,000 to some company to come in and help them create their mission and vision. And then they'll paint the values on the wall and then people get hired. It's like what they live on a daily basis has nothing to do with what's on the walls or what's stated on the website. And so what you're communicating is that you don't really value these things and that you're not authentic and that it's not your really your culture. So I tried to break down the main areas where I think leaders can just become more aware, more intentional and start reframing how they think of it. And then some tools on they can start bringing to the sort of day-to-day work experience for themselves and their teams. Awesome stuff. And I, I love how tactically focused the book is. A lot of good nuggets in there and piece of advice that you can use in real world situations all the time. I don't know if you've ever seen my fundraising talk that I do for every class of Techstars, but whatever it is, $15, $17 billion raised now. The first thing I say is if I can make you a little bit better communicator, I can make you a lot better fundraiser, right? It's so much about just being able to communicate in a direct way and saying the right things and finding ways to be in powerful positions and conversations that don't abuse anybody or take it over, but sort of drive the conversation the way you want it to go. So it's so important. That's the goal, right? What is it people think, well, this is what I want to tell them. And you have to think about who you're talking to because that may not be what they need to know. And you definitely do not want to overshare. You do not want to be sharing information that creates questions in their head that they didn't have. Right? You want to be really clear. And clarity does not come from more detail. As a matter of fact, more information usually clouds the equation. So taking the time to really craft how to be incredibly clear and when we're talking to really early stage in any cohort, in any vertical that I worked in, they have to get clear themselves before they can start making it clear to anybody else. So the act of clarifying it, your audience, right, your customer base, your value prop, all of those things have to be 100% clear to you before you can start figuring out how to message it and articulate that to anybody else. I mean, I feel like I could use this clip in the class that I teach because for every tech source company, right? We, we talk about really you need to make a direct and clear ask for them to commit to invest capital. That's how you ask an investor to commit. It's about here now, today, making a commitment. And what happens is they don't use language like that. And so they end up talking about hypothetical futures and things that aren't really going to move today towards what the goal is that you're trying to accomplish, which is getting commitment. In the book, I'm going to try to trigger maybe a thought, but I, I want to share maybe one for free before people go and buy the book, sort of another tidbit, tactical advice that's in there. You've been known to say, I'm paraphrasing, but puzzles, especially human ones, fascinate you. Are there some human puzzles that you were able to write about and how you might work through them with communication in this book? I think we're all puzzles. And the reason why I love being an entrepreneur is because I think that's what we love to do. I think so many entrepreneurs, we really would rather not stay with a company. Once you're at however many, 20, 50, you know, 500 employees in your global organization, it becomes a little bit rote and we get bored. That's why serial entrepreneurship is a thing. Uh, we want to go back and fix the problem, figure out the puzzle. Every day is a challenge. And I think that kind of energy is what makes entrepreneurs so dynamic and 
the problem-solving component of entrepreneurship, which is, I think, the way we get out of everything. When the pandemic hit last year, I put up a quote from The Martian, which is, you know, we need to science the shit out of this. And I think that entrepreneurs are the solution to pretty much every problem that we have. So if we can keep them really focused and make them the most effective leaders for their organizations that they can, then that's amazing. I love that movie and I love that line. I want to ask you, and we'll put the link to the book in the show notes so that people can easily go and find it. You are also, I mentioned earlier, sort of really involved in efforts around diversity in tech. You're vice chair of Div Inc., which is an organization that the Techstars Foundation also supports. In fact, we did a podcast with Preston, uh, who's the CEO there in episode 53, I think it was. What's your involvement there? Why do you love what they're doing? And what's that all about? After so many years of involvement with Techstars, I really saw the value of a really well-run accelerator and what it can do for the ecosystem. And I'd known Preston for years and had been supporting sort of some of the things he was trying to do. And for me, underrepresented, what I like to call undersupported founders, is really the new frontier where every opportunity, I just think it's the blue ocean for entrepreneurship. And if I thought things were bad for women, which they are, I mean, the things I've heard investors and mentors tell female founders would just make your hair stand on end. And I think for the male founders, ask your female equivalents, because I think it's important for you. One day you're going to have a lot of money. You're going to turn around and be an investor. And I ask you to be a more thoughtful one. But what is happening for the broader black and brown founders, particularly female black and brown founders, is just not okay. And their challenges are also different. They don't get FFF as often as a lot of the sort of the young white males coming out of Stanford and Harvard. So providing them earlier stage with some of the insights that they need, trying to help them get to what would be an FFF raise, getting them connected to seed stage and helping them through that process has been really important for me. And now we've grown. We're now in two cities. We started in Austin. We are in Houston now and we'll be growing over the next few years. So Div Inc., which stands for Diversity and Inclusion. Look us up. It's amazing. And thanks to Techstars for your support. It's huge. And we have some of your NDs who are really supportive as well. So that's amazing. No, that's the beauty of it. We can provide some, maybe a little bit of capital to help out and maybe amplify that in the network. But really just bringing the networks together is, as you know, the powerful thing. And it's exciting to see them growing and doing more as well. FFF, Friends, Family, and Fools. I think that's Yes, the Fools, there. always Fools. Founders rarely put their money in. <laughs> Stay tuned uh, from Techstars for some secret projects coming to provide more friends and family uh, replacement. Oh, really uh, we're working good. on that that's as a well. a huge pipeline we need, yeah. It's super important. So I'm glad you mentioned it. I want to do a couple quick rapid fires and then let you go. The book that you wrote, right, Turbulence, has a bunch of book references in it. I'm curious of all of the different research you did and, and maybe places you pulled from. Is there another book that, besides Turbulence that you would point entrepreneurs out there to listening that you think is great? I plug this a lot, but it happens to be a Techstars community book, which is Lovers that Amos Schwartzbarb and Trevor put out. I am a real believer in metrics. I think metrics provide a lot of clarity. I think it also, when we're talking about stories, when we have third-party data, whether it be testimonials or actual data, data and metrics, we can tell much more compelling stories. The more precise our stories are, the more compelling they are. And I think that they have built a process for startups to really start thinking about that in a very focused way, which I think the returns on that are huge. So I'm a big fan of that book. 
you know, it really depends. What I really encourage people, because there's a list of books in each chapter, is what is the biggest challenge you're having today? Focused on one thing at a time. I think about you've got to get the first boulder out of the way because sometimes when you get that hurdle out of the way, a lot of the other ones start to clear themselves out of the way. So is the challenge clarity? Is the challenge authenticity? Is the challenge hiring or leading a team and figuring out which is your number one biggest thing where you want to move the needle? And then that's where I ask people to look. Other quick random question I have for you, because I totally agree, Levers is an amazing book and lots of other great references in your book. So when people buy that, they'll see those as well and they'll get lots of ideas from you. But I'm curious, you've lived in a lot of different places. Um, You came from Austin where you experienced a startup community pretty intensely. You're now in D.C. How's D.C. doing as a startup community? What's the feel there for people who want to understand it or engage with it? Maybe investors listening or entrepreneurs thinking of being there. What's it missing? What's it great at in your mind based on your last year or so being there? I moved here three years ago. I say I've actually only lived here for a year and a half since I could have just as easily been living in Timbuktu for the pandemic. But what I found really interesting is that in many ways, it's kind of the opposite of where Austin was. Austin, very, very deep and broad, early stage ecosystem. Accelerators, lots of early money. I was a member of CTAN, which is the Central Texas Angel Network for eight years And it was the third most active angel network in the country. So lots of early stage money, lots of support for early stage founders. Things are starting to change now. Later stage money started to come to Austin, but that really was not the case. For a long time, you had to leave Austin to get anybody on either coast to give you funds. DC is really, especially when I first got here, tons of later stage money. No early stage money, (laughs) which is really hard to get to the point where you can get later stage money if nobody's getting you off the ground. And what's really exciting is that that has really started to change. And I moved to Austin from London in 2000, and I really see what's happening in DC right now is very much what I saw happening in Austin in the early 2000s. I think people are starting to bring the communities together, creating groups. I always believe you put a bunch of smart people in a room together, good stuff is going to happen. So that's really starting to happen. And people are starting to create new angel groups to really do some of that great early stage funding and early stage support. So by the time they get a little bit bigger, the late stage is here to support them. So I think this is the time to come. This is the time to get your feet wet in the DMV, as they call it here. Awesome trying to get some of the early stage uh, investing going. We, as you know, have the Future of Longevity program there, which is off to uh, hopefully a great start, feels a great start to us. So far, I went on to Wednesday. It looks good. Met the companies. Really excited for this cohort. It's uh, fun to be part of the community there and so many communities around the world. Monique Mealy, thanks for joining us. More importantly, thanks for everything you do to help so many entrepreneurs succeed all around the world, not just from the mentorship you do at Techstars, but you know the writing you do. It's packaging things that really help people learn and get better at the craft that they're practicing. So just a huge thanks from the Techstars Network for everything that you're involved with. Hey, thank you for letting me apart. Nobody's kicked me out of any of the cohorts yet, so I'm excited. It's the most fun thing I do. And it's actually the thing I miss the most about Austin is working with those guys down there. So thank you, guys. I'm glad you're part of it. Thanks. Thanks a lot for listening to the show today. We'd love to hear your feedback, ideas, or who you'd like to hear next on Give First. And please leave a rating and review, ideally a good one, and reach out anytime to podcasts at techstars.com or on Twitter, I'm at David Cohen. See you next time. Don't forget, Give First.